Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the ways that William James tries to explain to his audience in Pragmatism Lecture 2 what pragmatism is, is by framing it in relation to two broad movements or approaches of philosophy that they're going to be very conversant with, and which we typically talk about in history of philosophy or intro to philosophy classes, but don't use as terms quite so often today. And these are the rationalist side on one part and then the empiricist side on another. And typically we teach this in relation to the British empiricists and the continental rationalists. We like to line them up in threes because that's very convenient. So we talk about Locke, Barclay, Hume as empiricists. And we talk usually, at least in English speaking settings, about Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz. And we ignore everybody else who fits into those, those spectra. Like, for example, on the rationalist side, we should probably also pay attention to Nicholas Malbrook and to Arnaud and, and some of these other important thinkers. And on the empiricist side, we should probably think about read and common sense philosophy and all, all sorts of other things that we could say as well. And the other thing I'll point out too is that there are rationalist tendencies within Locke pretty strongly. And it's not as if the continental thinkers never looked at experience. So there's a spectrum here. Now, there was an important set of, you could say, dividing issues, dividing lines that allowed us to make this distinction. It was not merely the English Channel that was doing so. And you could say that the, the fundamental differences had to do in their approaches towards reasoning, how it was used, its importance in discovering truth, and in the origins of knowledge. How much of our knowledge comes from experience or reflection upon experience, and experience it has to be understood in a broad sense to not only include, you know, sense perception, but also perception of our sentiments or passions and the operations of our minds this is very clear in Locke and Hume and Barclay, right? And, you know, is there anything else that's going on or are we essentially blank slates and then we get this information coming in and a, a, an essential human nature processes it? Or do we already have some of our knowledge, at least in some perhaps undeveloped or unconscious way available to us in what Rene Descartes called the treasure house, the thesaurus is the Latin for it, of the, the mind, just waiting for the natural light to illuminate certain truths. And so this is one of the things that divided the rationalists from the empiricists. It, it's very silly to say that the rationalists were entirely devoted to a priori reasoning, you know, that had nothing to do with the world. That, that's a caricature and, and just complete nonsense sense when we look at the text. But Descartes thinks, for example, the very idea of truth is not something that we're gleaning from our experience. It's something we're bringing to our experience. And then if we go further in history beyond the 16th and 17th century and 18th century as well, and we start looking at the 19th century, you know, there's rationalistic and empiricist tendencies within the vast movements of philosophy that James would have himself been very conversant with. For example, idealism, which he doesn't fix the 
predicate of German too, but is, is very much drawing upon German idealism from Kant onward, right? We can also talk about positivism and other, other movements that are going on as being more rationalistic or being more empiricist. So James has all of these things in mind when he's trying to say where pragmatism is going to fit in with respect to the, these two different tendencies. And he tells us early on in the lecture, pragmatism represents a perfectly familiar attitude in philosophy, the empiricist attitude, but it represents it as it seems to me, both in a more radical and in a less objectionable form than it has ever assumed. So this is, you know, quite important. He's saying we're on team empiricist, but we're not partisans of the empiricist because the traditional empiricists, now there's some problems with them as well, but we're definitely not on the rationalistic side. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. He goes on and he says, a pragmatist turns his back resolutely and once for all upon a lot of inveterate habits dear to professional philosophers. He turns away from abstraction and insufficiency, from verbal solutions, from bad a priori reasons, from fixed principles, closed systems, and pretended absolutes and origins. He turns towards concreteness and adequacy, towards facts, towards action, and towards power. Now, he summarizes this by saying that means the empiricist temper regnant and the rationalist temper sincerely given up. It means the open air and possibilities of nature as against dogma, artificiality, and the pretense of finality and truth. But this is actually a passage worth pausing and reflecting on a bit. Is all rationalism being thereby dismissed? Notice what he's saying here, turning away from abstraction. Okay, that is turning away from rationalism and insufficiency, things that can't actually satisfy us. Verbal solutions, another thing he'll target the rationalist for, but empiricists often fall into that as well. Bad a priori reasons. He's not criticizing a priori reasons, period. He's saying bad ones. We might think, for example, about the reasoning in Candide about why we have noses, right? If you're not familiar with Voltaire's book, I forget whether it's noses or ears, but they're so we can hang our spectacle on. Now that's garbage reasoning. And that's what a bad rationalist would be doing, but that's not necessarily all rationalism from fixed principles. Okay. You know, that can be rationalist. That can also be empiricists if they go a certain way and closed systems and pretended absolutes and origins. So notice that he's, he's saying some of these things really can't support the weight that we would put on them. And that's the problem with the, the rationalist approach. He talks about a few other things concerned with, with rationalism. He spends a lot more time criticizing that than empiricism in this piece. One of their problems is a commitment to what we can call a static version of truth. James wants to offer us a different conception of truth. One that's, he calls it a genetic theory of truth. One that shows truth able to grow, able to develop over time. Here's a good example of, of what he's criticizing. Truth independent, truth that we find merely, truth no longer malleable to human need, truth incorrigible. He says that this is the kind of truth that rationalistically minded thinkers are after. And he likens this to the dead wood within a living tree. It, it serves some purpose, but it's not something good in and of itself. And so it's, it's again, rather static. A little bit later on, he tells us that the way in which rationalists view truth. It's by the way, something that's corresponding to their criticism of the pragmatic attitude. I'll just read this passage here. He says that 
Schiller has been criticized for being pragmatic by that rationalistic temper. And he says, pragmatism is uncomfortable away from facts. Rationalism is comfortable only in the presence of abstractions. The pragmatists talk about truths in the plural, their utility and satisfactoriness about the success with which they work, suggest to the typical intellectualist mind, a sort of coarse, lame, second rate, makeshift article of truth. Such truths are not the real truth. Such tests are merely subjective. See, see where this is going? The rationalists are willing to say, well, you can have your little truths over there, whatever you want to call truths, but they're not really truth with a capital T. And he goes down and he says, as against this, objective truth must be something non-utilitarian, haughty, refined, remote, august, exalted. Now notice the next sentence. It must be an absolute correspondence of our thoughts with an equally absolute reality. So this is a very uh, hardcore correspondence theory of truth, which assumes that there is an absolute truth out there. And that absolute truth is something static, eternal, defined once and for all. And it's our job to align ourselves with that by whatever means we're going to use. Most likely those, those things of the intellect, since nothing sensual or changing is going to be able to handle that. And again, we've got, you know, static conception. He also calls this being intellectualist as well. And so there's, you know, a strong criticism of, of what the, the pragmatists are doing and a very different conception of truth on the part of the rationalists. James criticizes them for several other things. He calls them intellectualistic. And that means that, you know, I'll, I'll go on with this passage because this will be a great example. Truth must be what we ought to think unconditionally. The conditioned ways in which we do think are so much irrelevance and matter for psychology, down with psychology, up with logic. Now, if, if you ever heard of psychologism outside of the realm of these discussions, rationalism, empiricism, maybe in the realm of phenomenology and, or, you know, other, other 20th century movements, that's what James is talking about there. He would say that they're intellectualist or rationalistic, right? We need to actually look at things how they are, not just reason our way to them. And he tells us that the rationalist loves to stick to logic, to what they can deduce, and to the empyrean. Now, this is a fancy term for, you know, what's in the heavens, what is above us. Could be the platonic forms, could be the Kantian categories and forms of intuition and the ideas rather than ideals, all of this sort of stuff. Or it could be whatever we want it to be, but it's going to be something that is way above us and which we conform ourselves to. He also tells us another thing that is kind of interesting here. He says that the typical ultra abstractionist shudders at concreteness, other, other things being equal, he positively prefers the pale and spectral. If the two universes were offered, he would always choose the skinny outline rather than the rich thicket of reality. Why? It is so much purer, clearer, nobler. Now, when we hear that, we can really see that you don't actually have to be a continental rationalist, and you could actually be, in many respects, devoted to empiricism, but of a certain sort, and still embrace that hyper-intellectualism that James is criticizing and saying that pragmatism is a good response to. You just have to have an impoverished reality. You might think about somebody like G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy who talks about the madman as having a very clean, concise reality that's unfortunately too small. 
right? So rationalism is going to be rejected here. What about empiricism? Are the pragmatists simply empiricists? Are they hyper-empiricists? That's what James suggested earlier, right? They're more radical empiricists. But what does that actually mean? It means that, think about what empiricism is about, that they're going to go to experience, that they're going to make experience absolutely central in their understanding of inquiry and reasoning and where we derive knowledge from. Are the empiricists empiricist enough? The answer is no. Many of them have a devotion to dogma just as strong as a rationalist does. It's just a different kind of dogma. And so James says, pragmatism, devoted as it is to facts, has no such materialistic bias as ordinary empiricism labors under. Right? So if there are things that we are trying to understand, we don't have to adopt a reductive materialism towards them just because the scientists may be like that, or actually not even really the scientists usually caring about that. It's usually the philosophers. It's usually the people who are devoted to a reductionist program, a naturalism that has to be kind of, let's say, too narrow, right? A genuine naturalism would take in all the experiences that we have. We see James talking about this in other places like the will to believe and the, variety, the varieties of religious experience. He also criticizes the empiricists for just like the rationalists sticking to something. He says empiricism sticks to the external senses. So if we want to think about what pragmatism is committed to that takes it beyond ordinary empiricism and also rationalism, he tells us, Pragmatism is willing to take anything to follow either logic or the senses and to count the humblest and most personal experiences. She will even count mystical experiences if they have practical consequences. She will take a God who lives in the very dirt of private fact if that should seem a likely place for him. So pragmatism represents a radical empiricism, as James was very willing to call it, and it's pluralistic. It doesn't try to impose one schema upon everything as the way to explain it all. So what we see here is that, that pragmatism is definitely on one side, but it's not on that one side in a narrow, partisan, dogmatic fashion. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.